whether you can say that you have the best mom ever or not, we are reminded on this day that we should honor and respect and love the mothers in our lives. So do that today. Personally, I do think that I have the best mom ever, and I am who I am today because of her. And I also think that my wife is the best mom ever. Maybe you can say that about your mom, or maybe you can't. Maybe you didn't have a good mother. Maybe Mother's Day conjures up painful memories for a variety of reasons. Maybe Mother's Day means that you go through a whole box of Kleenex. If that is the case, you need to know that Jesus is the good shepherd, the best shepherd ever. He will care for you today. He will take you in his arms and carry you close to his heart. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus is the good shepherd who has compassion on lost, wayward, hurting sheep. So turn to Mark chapter 6 because that's exactly what Mark is going to tell us in his gospel today. But Mark will also tell us something else about Jesus. Mark will tell us that Jesus makes a mean fish taco. Did you know that Jesus loved to make tacos? Jesus loved making tacos. Jesus was a Texan before being a Texan was cool. Because to be a Texan is to love tacos of all kinds and all varieties. Tacos were a part of Texas even before Texas became a state. Dallas-based food blogger Jose Rolot says, Texas has two national cuisines, barbecue and tacos. Tex-Mex fits in there, sure, but people eat a lot more tacos than they do enchiladas, enchiladas and combo platters. Journalist Allison McNeary says in her article, How Texas Fell in Love with the Taco, there are only two types of Texas families, barbecue families and Mexican food families. The distinction is determined by the answer to one simple question. What's the first restaurant you go to when you return home to Texas? Mando Rio, the author of the book, The Tacos of Texas, says, Tacos are part of the Texas culture. Whether you grew up here, were born and raised here, or you got here as soon as you could. It's what we do. It's how we bring people together. We don't break bread. We tear off a tortilla for the taco. Not only do Texans love tacos, Jesus loved tacos too. Fish tacos, to be more precise. Twice in the Gospels, like we'll see in our passage today, we see Jesus making fish tacos for several thousand people. And then one morning after his resurrection, Jesus makes fish tacos for breakfast for the disciples on the beach. How much does Jesus love fish tacos? He makes them for his best friends after his resurrection. Listen to John's account from his gospel in chapter 21. He says, when they got out on land, they, the disciples, they saw a charcoal fire, fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. So first meal Jesus makes post-resurrection, tacos. I knew Jesus was a Texan. I knew it. 
apparently Jesus likes to serve people fish tacos because he does it several times in the Gospels. And he'll do it in our passage today. And what we'll see in Mark chapter 6 today, as he serves the best fish tacos ever, what we will see is this incredibly breathtaking truth about Jesus. His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. And surely Jesus' heart went pitter-patter when he saw his disciples that morning on the beach when he made them breakfast after his resurrection. They were his best friends. And you can hear it in his words. Come and have breakfast. What a heartfelt invitation. Come here, guys. Sit down with me. I made you fish tacos for breakfast. Let's eat. And Mark will remind us in our passage today that Jesus is the good shepherd whose heart moves out in compassion toward wayward, lost, stupid, ignorant sheep. Mark will remind us that Jesus' heart goes pitter-patter for his people, the sheep of his pasture. And that's good news for ignorant sheep like us. We have a shepherd whose heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. Think about that. It's mind-blowing. It's the nature of grace. This is how grace works. The unruly, the unlovely, the uncouth, we are accepted. We are loved. We are welcome. And when Jesus sees us, his heart goes pitter-patter. It's truly mind-blowing. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, this whole section in Mark belongs together. So let's rewind a few verses and start with verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat you no doubt are familiar with this episode. Most young children know this episode. Loaves and fishes. Those two words just belong together, don't they? When I was in seminary in Dallas, Texas, they had a food pantry and a thrift store at the seminary where poor seminary students could get food and clothing. It was all free. And the name of the place? Loaves and Fishes. This story in Mark's gospel is synonymous with giving. And that's how this passage is typically taught. It's typically taught that we should give. We should share things with others. That's how many people teach this passage. The little boy shared his loaves and his fish, and so you should share your things. But that's not what Mark is getting at here. Mark has a deeper and a much richer point to make. 
So even though you may be familiar with this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 plus people, Mark is telling us things about Jesus and his relationship with his people that you may not be aware of. First, the location. The setting of this famous story is very important. It cannot be glanced over. Maybe you noticed it when I read the verses. Where does the feeding of the 5,000 take place? Three times Mark tells us a desolate place. Verse 30, verse 32, and verse 35. Mark is tipping us off here about the location of where the feeding of the 5,000 occurs. The Greek word that he uses is the word for desert or wilderness. It's the same word Mark used back in chapter 1 to describe the location of John the Baptist's ministry. And it was the location of the temptations of Jesus as well as the place where Jesus, Jesus would often go to be alone to pray. Now, when Mark says the wilderness or the desert, it does not mean that this was a desert like Arizona or New Mexico. It was, it was not a completely desolate or barren place because there were villages and towns close by around this area. As we'll see in verse 36, in a moment, the disciples suggest that people go to these villages to buy food. And it's not a typical desert area as some translations imply and here's why mark tells us in verse 39 that before jesus fed the 5,000 people he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass mark adds this particular detail about the green grass to tip us off that this was not a desert area with the obligatory scorpions and cactus and tarantulas and the you know lone cow skull that's sitting there. Mark is telling us that this is just an area on the outskirts of these villages, a quiet place with green grass that they could get away and be refreshed. But there's even more significance that this is the wilderness. What's significant about the feeding of the 5,000 taking place in the wilderness? Why did Jesus take his disciples to the wilderness to get refreshed? And why do all of these Israelites chase them down at this spot in the wilderness? And why does Jesus have them sit down in the green grass? All of these clues are very significant. Here's why. And here's what Mark wants us to see. The wilderness was a special place. The wilderness was where Israel, as a nation, honeymooned with Yahweh. Where they roamed and ate manna. Where Jesus successfully resisted the devil's temptations. And where Jesus will feed the 5,000. So the lights should be going off for us. The wilderness is pregnant with meaning and significance in the Bible. The wilderness was where the nation of Israel spent their honeymoon with the Lord when they came out of Egypt, when they entered into covenant with him at Mount Sinai. This place is special. And this is, is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says in chapter 2, verse 2 of his prophecy, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. 
So the nation of Israel once loved and served Yahweh in the wilderness. It's where the nation of Israel honeymooned with the Lord and where they spent the early days of marital bliss. This is where the newlyweds, if you will, enjoyed the beginning of their relationship. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know how this episode ends. The nation of Israel eventually rebelled in the wilderness and chased after other lovers and chased after other gods in the very place of their honeymoon. They mumbled and grumbled and complained in the wilderness. And the first generation was forbidden to enter the promised land and they roamed for 40 years. So the wilderness was a very significant place in Israel's history. It was where they entered into covenant with Yahweh. It was where the wedding reception was. It was where they honeymooned. And then it was where they turned away from the Lord, where they broke covenant, where they were unfaithful to Yahweh. So the wilderness was the place of their sin, the place of their failures. The wilderness was also significant because this was the place where Yahweh said that he would restore the nation. Hosea chapter 2, after 13 verses detailing all of their whoring after other gods, Yahweh at last declares his redeeming love for the nation of Israel and how he will woo them back in the wilderness. He will win their hearts again in the wilderness. Listen to these comforting words from the prophet Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from their mouths, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So the wilderness was not just the place where they had their wedding and not just the place where they had their honeymoon and not just the place where they turned away and disobeyed the Lord and pursued other gods. It was also the place where Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, said that one day he would restore them. So the nation of Israel knew Hosea chapter 2. We don't know it so much. They knew it, and they would cling to these verses. These verses were highlighted in their Bibles. These were the verses that they memorized. They catechized their children with these hope-inspiring words. They put Hosea chapter 2 on their coffee mugs. Why? Because it was a promise from the Lord about where he would allure the nation one day and speak tenderly to her in the wilderness. And here in Mark chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus is teaching the people, speaking to them again in the wilderness. This is where Jesus purposely took the disciples and where the crowd of 5,000 plus people followed and found them. 
Of course, this event likely took place in northern Israel, likely in the northern, northwestern section surrounding the Sea of Galilee. They are not in the exact location of the wilderness wanderings in the Old Testament, but they are in an area called the wilderness, and that is very significant, one that any good student of the Old Testament scriptures would pick up on. Just because they're not in the wilderness in the southern part of Israel going towards Egypt does not mean that this is not significant. For instance, Heather and I met each other in Texas and we got engaged in Texas. So if you plop me down in Texas, anywhere in Texas right now, and you said to me, this is where you met the love of your life. This is where you got engaged to Heather. I would not say to you, no, you're wrong. This, this is Amarillo. I met Heather in Dallas, and we got engaged in Cedar Hill. Not Amarillo. I didn't meet her in Amarillo. I wouldn't say that because anywhere in Texas is Texas. So if you plot me down in Amarillo right now and said, this is where you met the love of your life. This is where you got engaged to Heather. I would say, yes, it is. This is Texas, the most wonderful place on the planet. And this is where I met and got engaged to the most wonderful person I've ever met. God bless Texas and God bless Heather for marrying me. So when Mark says that Jesus is in the wilderness, he expects the lights to go off for us. They're in the spot where Israel spent their honeymoon with the Lord and where they brought covenant and where the Lord promised he would restore them, just like the prophet Hosea said. It's where the Lord said that he would bring the nation again and speak tenderly to her, where he would make her lie down in safety Or sit down in green grass. Where he would betroth her to him forever. And where he would betroth her to him in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and mercy. Where he would betroth her to him in faithfulness. And it's in the wilderness where Jesus is moved with compassion for the crowd. Look at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were lost. Why were they like a lost sheep? Because the Pharisees and religious leaders should have been caring for these people. Teaching them about God's love and his mercy and his grace. But instead, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders were placing burdens on these people that they could not bear, telling them to do more, to try harder, to get their act together. And so Jesus sees them, and they're like lost sheep with no shepherd to protect, no shepherd to care for them. So he's moved, Mark says, with compassion. The Greek word for compassion is splachnon. That's a good word, isn't it? Splachnon. It literally means guts. Your innards, where you feel love, where you feel heartache, where you feel compassion. It means that you have great affection for someone. We use the word heart for this in English, but guts is more accurate because when you get your heart broken, where do you really feel it? You don't feel it in your heart, do you? You feel it in your guts. So Jesus sees this large crowd of people who are like lost sheep, no shepherd to protect them, no shepherd to care for them. And he has compassion on them. 
He cares for them, and he feels it in his gut. Mark is telling us this incredible truth about Jesus, that his heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. And it's true for you today, right now. Jesus sees you and all of your needs, and he has compassion on you. He's the good shepherd. Now, you and me, we're just a bunch of dumb sheep who stumbled into this Jesus' heart-going pitter-patter thing. We don't deserve it. We're just like the nation of Israel. We walk away. We all walk away. We all chase after other lovers. And yet, he still loves us. Alec Motier said, The Old Testament is the place where we learn about the good shepherd looking after his sheep. God is in love with us. His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. That's so plain in the Old Testament. Listen, Grace, Jesus is not indifferent to your struggle. Jesus is not indifferent to your pain and your sorrow. If Mother's Day is difficult for you because you had a terrible mother or because you miss your mother because she lives in another state or because your mother passed away, Or because as a mother, you lost a child? Jesus knows. And Jesus cares. All that is happening in your life right now. The drama, the chaos, and the heartache. It moves Jesus to compassion. He sees you, and he feels your pain. He feels your sorrow. He feels your heartache. And he feels it in his gut. His heart breaks. So just pour your heart out to the good shepherd. Only Jesus can meet the needs of sinners, of lost sheep. And that's exactly what he's trying to teach the disciples. Look at verse 37. When they asked about sending the people away to get the crowds, verse 37, to get food, Jesus says, but he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and other fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So the disciples come to Jesus to inform him of the situation. It's getting late, so we should send these people to the surrounding villages so they can eat. And Jesus tells them, hey, I've got an idea. You feed them. What's Jesus doing here? Is he being sarcastic? No. Jesus is teaching the disciples that they have nothing in and of themselves to meet needs and help people. Jesus is teaching the disciples that they are just as dependent on Jesus as the crowd is. We are all sheep who need a shepherd. So the disciples take Jesus at his word and they try to problem solve this. They ask Jesus if they should find a Costco and go buy some food for these people. 
and they proposed 200 denarii worth of food, which was the equivalent of over half a year's salary for a day laborer. And Jesus shoots down their idea, and he tells them to find out how many tortillas they have. And they do find out, and then they tell him, five and two fish. So they've got five tortillas and two fish to feed 5,000 plus people. And the 5,000 people, as you well know, Actually, it's just the number of the men present, as Mark says. That number does not include the women and the children. Matthew tells us in his gospel that the 5,000 only included the men. In Matthew 14, 21, Matthew says, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there were 5,000 men plus maybe ten to 15,000 women and children. So there's around maybe fifteen to 20,000 people to feed And all they had was five tortillas and two fish and Jesus. Now, the bread that they had was not like a loaf of bread that we would have in our kitchen. It was more like a a tortilla or pita bread. So there were different ways to make bread back then. Bread was baked either over a fire on heated stones or on a griddle or in a clay oven. Leavened bread was usually in the form of round, flat loaves, and unleavened in the form of thin cakes. And Here's a picture of a tanner oven that was recently built by some biblical archaeologists. This was probably the most common method used. So you would flatten the dough and stick it to the side of the clay oven, and it would cook, and then you would just peel it off and eat. So bread was more often than not like pita bread or a tortilla. So they could just stick their fish inside their tortilla, fold it in half, and then they would eat the best fish tacos ever because Jesus made them. Jesus does what Mando Rio said about Texans. It's what we do. It's how we bring people together. We don't break bread. We tear off a tortilla for the taco. That's what Jesus does for the huge crowd. He breaks bread He tears off tortillas for tacos. And Mark tells us in verses 42 to 43 that they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Mark is giving us another clue here. How many baskets of leftovers were collected? 12. Numbers are significant in the Bible, and it is no accident that the 12 baskets were taken up. Jesus is trying to tell the disciples something. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is trying to get them to see that he is God incarnate. Yahweh the Lord, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd, standing right before their eyes. The theme of Yahweh being the shepherd of his people is all over the Old Testament. The prophets spoke of this all the time. Where do we see that God is our shepherd most clearly, though? Obviously, what? Psalm 23. It's all over the Old Testament. The place where we see it, the Most, you see it, the most clearly is the beloved Psalm 23, which says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, green grass. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
That's what Mark is saying that Jesus is saying here. When Jesus takes the loaves and feeds the people, he's saying that he is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's telling us that he is Yahweh, God incarnate, who fed the nation of Israel manna, fed them bread in the wilderness, and Jesus expects us, and he expected the disciples to get this. But as we'll see next week, Mark tells us in verse 52 that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying by the 12 loaves. They didn't get 12 loaves, 12 tribes, 12 loaves, 12 tribes. Can you get it? You ought to get it, guys. They didn't get it. Disciples weren't connecting the dots. Jesus is miraculously feeding the crowd with bread, manna. How many baskets are left over? 12. How many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes of Israel. Where is Jesus when he feeds the crowd? In the wilderness where Yahweh promised to restore the nation. Where are the people sitting down? In the green grass, the green pastures of Psalm 23. What body of water are they next to? The Sea of Galilee. What did Jesus do a few chapters back? And what will he do in the next paragraph? He calmed, he stilled the waters and the waves like the still waters of Psalm 23. But they aren't connecting the dots. The wilderness, the green pastures, the still waters, miraculously feeding 5,000 plus people with bread, 12 baskets of bread and fish left over. All of that equals Jesus is God incarnate, Yahweh, the Messiah, the good shepherd. Jesus is telling the disciples that he is Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, that he's the shepherd. The good shepherd of Psalm 23 who feeds and cares for his sheep. He is the one Isaiah was speaking of in Isaiah 40 verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Shepherd. All the good and comforting things that we know about God, that we sing about God, that we love about God, are captured in this one word, shepherd. The shepherd cares for the flock. The shepherd protects his flock. The shepherd guides his flock. The shepherd feeds his flock. The shepherd leads his flock to places of rest and peace. As Mark tells us in verse 34, he has compassion On his sheep. And that's what Isaiah is telling his audience in chapter 40. Isaiah was pointing back to Psalm 23 as he looked into the future and spoke to give encouragement to those who were in exile in Babylon. And here in Mark, Jesus is pointing back to Psalm 23 and pointing back to Isaiah and saying, That's me. I'm here. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the Messiah that the 12 tribes of Israel were looking for. 12 baskets. Get it, guys? Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that comforts the hearts of broken, weak, and wayward sheep. And our hearts need to be comforted because we are sheep. Our hearts need to be comforted because God's law exposes us as needy sinners. And it's the word sheep that exposes us. The word sheep exposes us as weak needy sinners who need a shepherd. Question, 
when we blow it, just like Israel did in the wilderness, just like the disciples do in the Gospels, just like they'll do next week in the next section when they don't connect all the dots, what do we need most from God? Comfort, compassion, and lots of it. Who gets the last word in our lives? Is it our sin? Is it our failures? Or God? God does. God gets the last word, and he comes to comfort us as a shepherd, to carry us close to his heart. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us in our sins. He doesn't leave us in exile. He does what a shepherd does. He overrules our stupidity, and he gently leads us back home. Does that mean there are no consequences to our sin? Does that mean that we never cry prayers of repentance? Of course not. But when we fail... He comes to comfort. He has compassion on lost, wayward sheep. As Hosea says in chapter 11, the Lord says to his people, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I think these are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. God's people have continually turned away from the Lord, and yet His heart moves out in what? Compassion. Yahweh is revealing His heart for His rebellious children so as to allure them to love Him again. When we run away from Jesus, which we all did this week. Do I need to remind you? When we run away from Jesus, his heart is overthrown. It's the word that was used when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. His heart is overthrown with compassion, and he moves out in tenderness to us. Yes, he disciplines us, Hebrews 12, but his knee-jerk reaction is one of kindness. After all, what leads us to repentance? The law? The whips and terrors and threats of the law. No, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And we see his kindness in Hosea 11 because when we run after other lovers, Yahweh's compassion, Hosea tells us, grows warm and tender. It's the Hebrew word kamar. It's to grow warm. It's used in lamentations of an oven heating up. Like the oven that they would make the bread in, the tanner oven. It starts to warm and heat up. It's also used when Joseph saw his brother Benjamin for the first time. It says that his compassion grew warmer. God's anger does not flare up when we sin. Rather, his compassion does. His heart heats up like an oven, not with anger, which is what you would expect, but with compassion. This is why grace is amazing. And that amazing grace should make you want to live for him and to live for his glory. That's what his kindness is designed to do. As Charles Spurgeon said, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. 
This is how Jesus deals with his sheep. Compassion. Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, Helpless. What animal does the Bible say 400 times that people are most like? Oh dear, it's sheep. Sheep aren't clever at all. They're foolish. For instance, sometimes they just topple over and can't get themselves back up again. They just lie there. And they're constantly falling off cliffs or going to unsafe places and getting stuck or eating poisonous things or getting hurt or running off and getting lost or not finding their way home again, even if their fold is in plain sight. So you see, sheep are completely helpless on their own and desperately need a shepherd. And God says we are helpless on our own too. And we desperately need a shepherd, which is why he gave us Jesus. If you can come to grips with the truth this morning, that like David says in Psalm 23, if you can say the Lord is my shepherd. And that means that you are a weak and needy sinner who is prone to run from God. If you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, then you are a prime candidate to receive the grace of God. That's the sweet spot right there. It's the sweet spot because that's where you find the good shepherd. You have to admit that you're a dumb sheep. You're foolish. You're ignorant. You chase after other things and you can't find your way back home and you need a shepherd. If you can admit that this morning, that's the sweet spot because that's where you find Jesus. That's where you find the good shepherd. If you can come to grips with what Mark wants you to see, that you are a lost sheep that needs a shepherd and that Jesus is that shepherd, then you've heard the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that his heart goes pitter-patter when he sees us. That we are his, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we belong to Jesus now. The gospel is the voice of our shepherd, Jesus. And in the gospel, he demands nothing of us. In the gospel, Jesus demands nothing of us. God simply announces the good news that he has given us, poor sinners, wayward sheep, he has given us his son, to be our shepherd. The gospel is the good news that the son has laid his life down for his sheep. And our shepherd will seek us out when we roam, when we find ourselves in exile, and he will bring us to the green grass and the fresh water that restores our souls. The green pastures and the still waters are the gospel. The good news that we are called to return to daily, moment by moment. Because of the gospel, Because Jesus, the good shepherd, laid his life down for his sheep, and that means that we can walk through a dark, broken world, through the valley of the shadow of death, with the good shepherd, not by ourselves, not obsessed with ourselves. We're not alone in the valleys. He is carrying us in his arms, close to his heart. May you look to your shepherd this morning, Grace. May you see his strong providential arm working for your good. May you see his smiling face. I typed that up last week and I read it this morning, early this morning, and I was just struck by it. May you see his smiling face as he looks upon you this morning, as his heart goes pitter-patter, and says, come here. May you see his smiling face and run to him. May you see his strong arm and say, I trust you. And may you feel most gently the warmth of his shepherding arms around you. 
Alec Motier said, the sovereign God is never more sovereign than in the work of mercy and salvation. And it is those who know that they have most signally erred and strayed from his ways who, within the blessed arena of salvation, feel most gently the warmth of his shepherding arms around them and know themselves for sure to be the lambs of his flock. Do you know yourself to be one of the lambs of his flock? You can today. Just open the empty hands of faith and believe. Receive. And he will carry you and you will feel the warmth of his shepherding arms around you and then one day he'll make all this sadness come untrue. One day Revelation 7, 17 will become our reality. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb is our shepherd cares what's the first thing Jesus says to Mary after his resurrection the very first thing that Jesus says after the resurrection is why are you weeping he moves out immediately with compassion to comfort Mary's broken heart he doesn't pop out and say I'm back I told you so he calms and comforts Mary's heart and offers her a Kleenex And one day, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Did you know that's the last action we see Jesus doing in the Bible? Wiping away our tears. The last thing that we see Jesus doing in the Bible is taking out a Kleenex and wiping away our tears. That's what the good shepherd does. He has compassion on lost sheep, wayward sheep, stupid sheep, ignorant sheep. And then he feeds them fish tacos. What's not to like about Jesus? His heart goes pitter-patter when he sees you. His heart of compassion warms up like an oven. It's amazing love. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. And does he talk thus lovingly of us? Whose heart would not this overcome? His heart is overcome with compassion when we sin, when we run away. It goes pitter-patter when he sees us. So let this amazing truth overcome your heart today. That he doesn't remember your sins. He speaks lovingly to you. I can't remember your sins. Would that not overcome your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, it's amazing Amazing love, amazing grace that you're so kind and merciful and gracious and forgiving. Because we run away and we would expect you, your blood to boil, to be angry with us. Because that's how we are when people wrong us. And yet because of Jesus heart grows warmer and warmer and warmer with compassion the further we walk away from you that is amazing I pray this morning that the good news of the gospel would overcome our hearts so that we would want to live for you in Jesus name Amen